Normally what you try to do as a preacher when you're coming to a more esoteric book of the Bible is you try to convince people that it's relevant for our times and the days in which we live. I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it in 30 seconds. I want you to look up the last verse of the book of Judges with me. Judges 21, verse 25. It's on page 266. So this book concludes and is summarized in these words. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. A time when people did whatever they liked. 3,000 years ago, give or take, there are a whole lot of parallels between the times in which we find ourselves and the situation at the time of the book of Judges. This was a time of spiritual pluralism. That's something we haven't had to think about in Ulster for the last three or four centuries. But the society in Canaan, this land which God had promised his people and which he had now brought them to, they ended up living intermingled with other nations, a mixture of people um, who were believing and believing and people who were pagan. So it was a time when God's people daily faced a choice between looking to God as the Lord or following the spirit and preferences of the age in which they lived. This book of Judges is mainly a story about how they failed in their task. Didn't mostly look to the Lord. Were easily led astray and did what was right in their own eyes. If you were here with us for the last couple of series that we preached on Sunday mornings, the book of Jonah and the uh, Proverbs, which we did over the summer, we've got into the habit of showing you where each part of the Bible fits into the big picture. Um, Mark, if we could flick up that um, slide. So these, these slides are not super sophisticated, as you can see, a bit sort of primary schoolish. If you can do a better job for me, just come and touch me on the shoulder and say, I'll design you a better slide. But for now, this is what I've got. So this shows you the whole of the, the Bible starting top left-hand corner with Genesis in the pale blue. The second section across, that redder colored section, is what we would call history. So if we could flick up that history slide, Mark, the historical books, you'll see that Judges is the second of the historical books. Um, I've already started this evening by getting us to think a little bit about Joshua. Joshua is the first of the historical books and then it, it flows on through. So the first five books of the Bible really deal with the period up until the time where God's people come to the promised land. The book of Joshua tells about, I suppose, mostly about the conquest, the, the battles that were fought as the people uh, moved towards and into the promised land. And we're going to start this evening in the book of Judges at the very start thinking about how well that settlement went that fought most of their battles or they're still fighting them, but they're also moving in to the territory. So that's, that's where we are. And just to help you put that all in context, the wee book of Ruth, it, it really dovetails in. It, it falls within the time of the book of Judges. And the story continues in 1 Samuel. When Samuel is the last 
of the judges of Israel. But as you know, he's the guy who um, anoints Israel's first king, King Saul. So I don't know if that helps, but it helps, helps us know where these Bible stories all fit together. Thanks for that, Mark. To understand the book of Judges, we, we're going to look back before we look forward. And you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 1, that it does mention Joshua. It, it sort of invites us to look backward. So Joshua was the, the leader of God's people. God chose him to succeed Moses. And Joshua's a pretty unique guy in Israel. You might remember the story from Sunday school of how there were two spy, there were 12 spies chosen to go and spy out the land. Only two of them came back with a good report, which was the godly thing to do, Joshua and Caleb. So he's one of only two people from his whole generation who were faithful to God. And therefore, he and Caleb are two who survived God's judgment on that generation. The rest died in the desert, but Joshua and Caleb make the transition into the promised land. At the beginning and the end of his book, God gives instructions to Joshua about how he wants the people to live. And these, we need to see these instructions because otherwise Judges 1 doesn't make any sense. So flick with me for a second to Judges chapter 1, page 216. I'll give you a second to flick that up. God tells the people there in Judges 1, or sorry, Joshua 1. I'm going to get my J's mixed up here, forgive me. I'll get this wrong. Um, Hopefully you'll be able to tell from the context what I'm talking about. Joshua chapter 1, page 216. In verses 3 to 4, God, God draws a map, if you like, a verbal map, and tells the people, this is the territory I'm going to give you. I'll give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea in the west. We'd call that the Mediterranean. The second thing he does is he reminds them in verses 7 to 8, there's the territory you're going to have, but look at verses 7 to 8. This is the way you need to proceed as you enter this land. Yes, there'll be military advances, but there needs to be a humble spiritual walk with the Lord. It says there, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. It's an important message, and so it's repeated near the end of the book. If you flick over with me to chapter 23, that's where we start to see um, Joshua's farewell speech. We've already read a little bit of it earlier in our service. But chapter 23, verse 6, he says again, Be very strong. Be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law without turning aside from it to the right and to the left. That's all very well, but it's not very, it, it's a bit vague, isn't it? What, what does it mean to be obeying God's command, to be careful to obey the book of the law? Look at verse 7. 
Joshua says, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. Further down in verse 12, he warns the people against intermarrying with their pagan neighbors. I think you could summarize this part of Joshua's message by saying something like this. When you get to the promised land, don't take anything to do with the Canaanite people, the people who live there. Immediately, I feel like I I need to pause for a second. Uh, We're going to have to do this a number of times on the way through the book of Judges because some of what happens here feels strange to us. So when we read these Old Testament texts, there's a question arising in my mind. Why is God so adamant that his people, Israel, would drive out the indigenous people from the land and have nothing to do with them? It doesn't sound very multicultural. It doesn't sound very open to the foreigner, which we showed from Scripture a couple of weeks ago is very much the heart of God. So why in this specific case is God asking himself, his people, to distance themselves from these Canaanites? Well, here's why. God's purpose in requiring his people to drive out the Canaanites isn't the usual reason why you drive out your enemies. Why do people usually drive out their enemies? Well, there are a couple of reasons. The first one is vengeance. You hurt me. Your forefathers hurt my forefathers. I have a grievance against you, and therefore I'm going to engage in, let's call it ethnic cleansing, to get rid of you and your type out of this land. And we've seen that, haven't we? That phrase, ethnic cleansing, I don't know if it was born in the Balkans conflict of the late 90s, but that's where I remember first hearing it. We see it now in Syria. And... We have grown up with it, actually, in Northern Ireland. Get out. Don't want your type here. The second reason why people are are often driven from the land is economic. We see your land. We see its, its value. We see its resources. And we see how we could benefit from it. So we'll drive you from it. It sounds like Hitler's Third Reich on the Eastern Front where he wanted more Lebensraum for the German people, and he thought nothing of pushing Poles and Russians back to to win that territory for Germany. Vengeance, economic reasons, that's not what's happening here. God's not commanding his people to drive back the Canaanites for either of those reasons. His reason is solely spiritual. You see, God wants his people to to remove the Canaanites so that the Canaanites won't be a destructive influence on them in the present and on into the future. He wants this, this new, brand new nation of people. Only only a couple of generations have they been a people at all. He wants them to have a a secure, safe environment free of the influence of the pagan Canaanite religion. You see, what he wants, and what God's always wanted, 
is a people who look like him so that a watching world can see what he's like. That's always been God's heart. That's what he wants from his people, Israel. Folks, that is going to help us. Forgive me if that seemed like our long preamble, but chapter one will start to make sense now uh, with that backdrop in place. In chapter one, we're going to see that God's people are somewhat faithful, but actually quite unfaithful too. Chapter 1 tracks the successes. If you looked at it carefully, um, you'd notice that it deals really with nine of the 12 tribes, and it it deals with their their moving into the land that's been allotted to them. Almost immediately, the focus falls on Judah. Look at chapter 1 there, verse 3. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. This is really good plain common sense, isn't it? We're about to go into battle. It makes sense to double your numbers before you go. Good plain common sense, but it's faithless and it's disobedient. God's word had said Judah was to go and Judah fails to obey. They go, but they don't go the way they were told to go. So their obedience is half-hearted. Their discipleship is a half-discipleship. And that's a theme that we're going to see recurring again and again throughout this book of Judges, the faithlessness of God's people. Another theme that we're going to see over and over again is God's grace. Look at what God does. He tells Judah to do something. They don't do it. But look at verse 4. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. Despite their disobedience, he gives them success. By the way, and here's my second apology for the biblical story this evening. We might have some questions about this guy with the great name, Adonai Bezek. I'm sure the the punishment that was inflicted on him Uh, sounded as gruesome to you as it did to me. So our 21st century uh, sensitivities have us having great qualms about what went on here. The interesting thing is that Adonai Bezek, the guy who had his fingers and his, his thumbs and his big toes removed, doesn't share any of our qualms. The reason is he had taken 70 sets of big toes and thumbs from other kings in his time. So he says in verse 7 that God has paid me back. If you read on in in chapter 1 there, verses 8 to 11 and then uh, 17 to 18, we see Judah taking uh, more and more territory. The truth is, folks, if chapter 1 finished at verse 18 where we finished reading, then it would be mostly quite encouraging. It would bode quite well for the rest of the book of Judges, but, but verse 19 jars. We haven't read this, so we need to maybe look at it together. Verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. Judah doesn't trust God's strength. They measure their own strength 
against the strength of these chariot-owning enemies, and they don't feel able to drive them off the land. You see what we have here? It's what Tim Keller calls common but faithless sins. Judah doesn't trust God. Instead of doing what God's commanded them to do and believing that he'll be able somehow to give them what he's promised, they make a common sense calculation. We've got foot soldiers. They've got chariots. Therefore, we cannot win a battle against them. It's just plain common sense. So they follow their common sense reasoning and they fail to drive the people out from the plain. And as a result, they won't ever get the chance that God wanted them to have to be his people, to worship him without compromise. The remaining Canaanites are going to prove to be a thorn in their flesh for centuries to come. Folks, this, this passage um, and this idea has really spoken to me this week. I've been challenged about the danger of being dictated to by common but faithless sins. It struck me. I feel more prone to this now than I used to because I'm getting older. I've done some or even most of my growing up. People are expecting me to be sensible by now. Sensible by their standards, that is. I'm concerned too, though, that Kirkpatrick Memorial might be getting more prone to this. You see, we're no longer the little small community that had so little to lose that we were 12 years ago when I first arrived. Maybe as we've grown, we've traded a little bit of our courage and our willingness to take risks for some common, but but maybe faithless sense. Common sense says things like... uh, We can't avoid the lure of materialism. It's just not possible. This is Billy Hackamore. It's 2015. That's just plain common sense. You'd better get used to it and stop trying to swim against the tide. Common sense says other things. So, for example, it says that that young people don't want to spend time in an all-age worshipping community. They're not ready to grapple with God's word. Everyone knows that. It's just plain common sense. We'd better accommodate the church to that reality. Common sense says that we can't reach Belfast for Christ. All around us, churches are in decline. So the best thing that we can do for ourselves and for our children is to guard what we have. Don't take any risks. Don't stretch yourself. Consolidate. I'm sure there are a whole load of other risks where our community might be tempted to allow common sense to trump obedience. I'm sure there are many places in our lives, 
each one of us where the same could be true. The book of Judges paints a picture of people living by common sense reasoning and falling far, far short of what God has for them. These closing verses of uh, chapter 1, we didn't read them, but they show how contagious faithlessness can be. In verse 21, the Benjamites, they fail to dislodge the Jebusites from the territory that had been given to them. In verses 22 to 26, the house of Joseph does what they'd been told not to do. Don't make any deals. They make a deal with a Canaanite instead of trusting in God's covenant promises. Verses 27 to 28, it's Manasseh's turn to to fail. They don't drive out the inhabitants either. If you read on through verses 29 to the end of the chapter, it's a depressingly repetitive story. Each of these tribes fails in turn to do what God has commanded them to do. In many ways, and at first glance, If we hadn't taken the time to look at that Joshua context, what God had commanded his people, this chapter would have read pretty well. It's a story of God's people moving into the land. But whenever we do read it with the Joshua backdrop, it tells a story of half-heartedness, half-hearted discipleship. Without the Joshua and the whole Bible background, there do seem to be very plausible reasons why this Israelite campaign wasn't entirely successful. So there's the inferior military might, there's the sensible compromise, there's economic convenience. How could you drive out people with chariots when you don't have any yourself? If we read Joshua 1 in its own terms, it reads really like Israel's press releases from Operation Canaan. It's their spin on why they weren't successful, why it just didn't quite work as well as might be expected. And I'll tell you, and I'm sure this is the narrator's intention, as you read it, you sort of feel sorry for them. You find yourself agreeing with them. When we're told in verse 19 that they were unable to drive the people out, we're inclined to agree. We sort of think to ourselves, well, they did their best. We could still hold that view even right through to the end of chapter 1, but chapter 2 blows it out of the water. Look at the opening verses of chapter 2. An angel comes to the people, and through his messenger, the God of grace delivers this verdict. He says what? You have disobeyed me. They've disobeyed God by what they have done. They've made a covenant with the people of the land, even though they were told not to. They've disobeyed him by what they haven't done. They've failed to to break down the altars to get rid of this pagan worship among them. This was the whole point of the campaign, to cleanse Canaan of idols, to find a place where they could be the people of God, live a wholehearted obedience to God. If you allow the Canaanites to continue to live in the land, what have you got? 
You've got idol worship right in the heart of the people of God. So here we have it. Our view of things in head-on collision with God's view of things. We can say like the Israelites of chapter 1 verse 19, we can't. But God says in chapter 2 verse 2, something different, you won't. And it's a good question to be asking ourselves as we finish this first look at Judges together. Where in my life am I saying, I can't? But God sees it differently and says, no, no. You won't. There may be all sorts of things in our lives that we think that we're unable to do, but actually we're simply refusing to do. Here are three suggestions for areas where we might be justifying our disobedience by saying we can't obey. Forgiveness. I can't forgive him. I can't forgive her. But God's words commanded obedience, so it must be possible to forgive. We, we can choose to forgive. We can choose to put aside our anger. We can choose to soften our hearts and act graciously in light of the grace that we have received in the gospel. We can choose to act as though that wrong had never happened. Whenever we say that we can't, what we mean is we won't. We want to hang on to our anger, to our bitterness, to our right to get even. All of this under the excuse that we, we can't. There's another area where we, where we might say, I can't where we really mean, I won't. And that is telling difficult truths. Is there anybody in your life that you know you need to say something to? I just can't tell him the truth. It would destroy him. It would destroy me. God tells us in his word, Ephesians 4, to speak the truth in love. This must be possible. But we usually ex excuse ourselves for our, our cowardice and our pride by saying, I can't. What we really mean is this. If I tell him the truth, he, he may not like me anymore. He may be angry with me. He might be upset. I won't take that risk. It's just not worth it. I'll, I'll choose not to obey. There's a third place uh, uh, where we might be saying, I can't, where we really mean I won't, and that's in the area of temptation. I can't resist doing this, even though I know it's wrong. We'll have to be careful here because sin does have very real power over us, doesn't it? It's addictive, oftentimes. It's true that we might not be able to, by, by sheer willpower, just to avoid a, a particular sin. 
But we can humble ourselves. We can admit our problem to God and we can cry out for his mercy and his transformation. We can talk to somebody about it. Ask them to hold us accountable. God always gives us a way out. That's, that's Paul's assertion in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can stand under it. Folks, this probably isn't a popular line to take in our age. But it seems to me that the straight teaching of Scripture is that no sinful thought or action is inevitable or irresistible. We can resist temptation. We can fight to overcome it. And when we say, I can't, maybe we're saying, I won't. We're simply excusing ourselves and going on sinning anyway. I want to finish this evening by pointing out a tension that's in this passage and that's going to run right the way through the book of Judges. Look for a second at those opening verses of chapter 2. In verse, chapter 2, verse 1, God says to his people, I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. I swore to give this land to your forefathers. So we have a promise there, don't we? God swears to his people I'm going to give you the land. But then look at his, his I tell you in verse 3. Therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They'll be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. There's a tension here. It's as though the Lord is saying, I've promised to give you the whole of the land. And now I've also promised not to give it fully to a disobedient people. I've promised to give you the land, but I promise not to give it to a disobedient people. And look at verse 2. I think we get a glimpse into the heart of God here. There's, I, I see a sense of exasperation here. As soon as God tells his people where they've disobeyed him, he asks them, why have you done this? It's like God saying to his people, listen, you've put me in an impossible position. I've sworn to bless you because I love you. And I've sworn not to bless you because of your disobedience. How can I solve this dilemma? And folks, this brings us right to the heart of God and right to the heart of his relationship with fallen human people. On the one hand, God's holy and just. He can't tolerate or live with or bless evil. That's who God is. God's word tells us that. 
But on the other hand, God is loving and faithful, and he can't tolerate losing the people he loves. That's who God is. That's who he shows himself to be. So there's a huge, seemingly unresolvable tension in the narrative here in Judges, but also throughout the whole of the Bible. And as I've said, this isn't going to be resolved. This is going to run right through Judges. Because we're going to be left wondering as we read this book, will God finally give up on his people? But if he does, where does that leave his faithfulness? Or will God finally give in to his people? Accept them exactly as they are. But if he does, where does that leave his holiness? It's only in the cross of Jesus Christ that we can see how God finally resolves this tension. You see, in the cross, our sin was given or imputed onto Jesus. His righteousness was imputed onto us. On the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross... God poured out his righteous wrath, not on us who deserved it, but on his perfect and beautiful son. And in that one moment, his justice was satisfied. Our sin rightly punished. And his loving faithfulness demonstrated as he showed us his love and as he accepted us and keeps all his promises to us. Only in the cross of Jesus Christ can God be both righteous judge and loving father. This is the only place where the tension of judges, the tension of the whole Bible, the tension of the entire human existence is finally resolved. Folks, we we will do this oftentimes in our studies and judges. We'll have to look forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the answers don't lie in the era or in the book of Judges. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified in our place, we will always get it wrong about sin one way or another. Either we'll be complacent about our sin... Because we'll say God has promised himself to us, sinful or not. Or we'll be weighed down by our guilt. Because we'll say God must judge us, sinful as we are. The cross is the only place where that tension is resolved. Where we're both more sinful than we ever realized, but more loved than we ever dared to dream.